your internet connection is unstable. Of course, it fucking is. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 202 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and yesterday made the schoolgirl error of dressing for the beautiful English sun rather than the actual seaside temperature. It was cold. Classic Brit, that's what we call that. What seaside did you go to? Went to two different bits of the Essex coast. Jen, brace yourself, yeah. Mm -hmm. Went to West Mersey, which is... It's got loads of lovely beach huts and it was nice. Doggo, whose birthday it was, she had a lovely paddle. And then, it's not much to do there, so we went to Clacton. Clacton on sea. Clacton on sea, yep. We had some chips, we had an ice cream and we came home. Classic And we feared for our lives. (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and it's been about four weeks, so I don't even really know what to say here. I've been on holiday, I've had the flu, I took my nephew to the greatest play in the world, bought a new desk. Non-stop. It's been big. I mean, it's only been two weeks since we did an intro, but it feels longer. You've, you've packed some stuff in. There you go. I've had flu and it has destroyed my brain. I've also got, had to got my window open, so if you can hear children screaming, it's because there's a really big bee in my lounge. Oh, wow. And are the children in the lounge too, screaming at the bee? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm hoping it heads out of the window towards the screaming and I can close the window. Okay. I mean, if I was that bee, I wouldn't head towards the screaming. (laughs) Well, I mean, other than that, it's just got two cats that are trying to catch it and kill it. So that's not going to win well for for any of them, I don't think. Hashtag thoughts and prayers for the bee. I'm Jen Offord and on Saturday I went to a wedding at the Tank Museum. Can I just say, Jen, and apologies to Mickey, whose wedding I've actually been to, but that sounds like the greatest wedding ever in the history of weddings. That is harsh. You did have a nice wedding, and I did. I do like small weddings, but if it was going to be a big wedding, I'd like there to be a tank. <laughs> well, there were lots of tanks. Did you go in one? No, I couldn't get in any of them, sadly. I just uh, walked around them, and there was like one thing that made me laugh was there was a sign-up that um, sort of lists a bunch of events that tanks have been involved in. It was a strange list. Were they wars? More they were events? mostly wars, Hannah. Oh, they right, were okay. mostly wars and it was mostly unsurprising that tanks had been used. And then the West Dorset show. Yeah. And then there was a big display about Nuremberg and you're like, it's quite high up there, to be fair, in the uh, pivotal moments of tank use. Iconic. And it's all very romantic. And I think that is yeah. the key when you've got <laughs> tanks at a wedding. Absolutely. Later on, we've got one of our favourites, Laura Bates, the feminist writer, activist, founder of Everyday Sexism and author, joins me to rage against the sexism machine, although she somehow manages to do it with less of a potty mouth. Yeah, Mick. Yeah. (laughs) I talked to Julie Owen Moylan about her debut novel, That Green-Eyed Girl, and getting her first break in publishing over the age of 60. Mm. That's amazing. In Jenny Off the Blocks, it's Emma Hayes' appreciation time again. Jen, can I tell you a sports story? Sure, go on. Okay, you know how I do like a sporting underdog? Yeah. Newport Pagnell Football Club is playing at Wembley in May at the FA Vars. Oh. um, Which is for not proper football clubs, no offence, Newport Pagnell. And it's like a, 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 the national event for, you know, small clubs. And they're in the final. Not bad going for a, a club whose pitch is right near the river, so underwater about three months out of the year. <laughs> to be honest, I imagine the Harwich and Parks and Sunday Shrimpers could only dream of such things. So, so well done, Newport Pagnell. 
Yeah, you can still get tickets, people of Newport Pagnell, if you listen. Because I think the whole town of Newport Pagnell could go and still be tickets, um, <laughs> to be fair. but Will there be tanks there? Yeah, I mean, hopefully. <laughs> FA Vars does seem the place for them. If they're, if, they're, if they're there at weddings, why not? Can I just say about the wedding that when they uh, did the thing and then they go and, you know, you sign it, you sign the bit of paper and make it all official, the music comes on. So obviously, you know, that's what people generally do, just sort of kill time. And I was sitting there and I was like, what is this? And it's like, do, 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 do. And I realised it's well, fucking James Bond. You. No, it's James Bond. And I was like, that's brilliant. Well done, you. Nice <laughs> touch at the Tank Museum. I would have thought something like, da, 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 da. Might have been a bit more fitting for a tank wedding. This wedding is sponsored by The Sun. Oh, do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? (laughs) Again, romance. I don't know how to segue, but in Rated or Dated, we're chatting about one of the most successful films of all time, 1982's E.T. Please do make any phone calls ahead of recording. But first, abortion... Poverty, class and the menopause. You'll find all human life in the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Hannah, thanks very much. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to admit to you that I've just had a little bit of cheese and pickle sandwich and um, sure. I'm, I'm just finishing it. And I'm ashamed to say that, but there you go. I don't know if you... I know that you've seen it, Hannah, just for anyone who's have, yeah. unaware. We're talking about... Hugh Edwards, the newsreader, and little uh, faux pas, if you will. I don't think it was a faux pas. He'd eaten a bit of croissant and he was just having a little bit of a mm, 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 when the news started and obviously felt a bit embarrassed about it. Poor old Hugh. We don't judge you. We don't judge you at no, all. I decided to really self-flagellate, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, it's 20 to 6 in the morning, so, you know, I'm going to eat a croissant. All right, Hugh, that's fine. Yeah, and to be honest, like, I'm guessing it was election time. He'd probably been up all night. He's probably fucking starving. I imagine he was. Late night with the old ballots. Yeah, in other news, there's been some elections. Moving on. Let's talk about what's happening in America regarding the Supreme Court, something Mickey mentioned in last week's podcast, and something that has led people to worry will spell the end for the right not to be pregnant in the U.S., The leaking to Politico of the news that the Supreme Court was set to overturn Roe v Wade is currently under investigation, but the info in said leak has been confirmed. Speaking of confirmed, the worst fears of pro-choices in America that recent appointments to the Supreme Court would turn the judges pro-life. Let's put that in quotes where it belongs. Well, they don't look so daft or hysterical or whatever it was they were branded during Trump's presidency. I mean, slippery slope arguments get a bad rap, and often rightly so, but I'd invite you to go back and listen to the interview I did with Mother Jones's Hannah Levintova during Brett Kavanagh's confirmation hearings. It's upsetting how right she was. Mm. A lot of the problem, of course, lies with the way abortion was legalised or decriminalised in the US, and I'm well aware that I've said this before, but it seems it really does bear repeating. Dealing with the abortion question in the Supreme Court, rather than via legislation, left it vulnerable to the whims of whoever is now on the Supreme Court. It also meant that if you were pleased with the outcome, you had the impression that abortion was a settled issue, when it wasn't. 
And if you weren't pleased with the outcome, the fact that it happened in court and not at the ballot box meant for you it would never be a settled issue. But hang on, doesn't America have a pro-choice precedent and doesn't his party have a narrow majority in the Senate? Shouldn't that make codifying into law a woman's right to abortion a piece of piss? Aha. Oh, hello, US politics. Hmm. In a press statement, President Biden said he'd called on the White House Gender Policy Council and the White House Council to, quote, prepare options for administration response. Would that response solve the crisis? Well, here's Kiara Bridges, a UC Berkeley law professor and faculty director for the Centre on Reproductive Rights and Justice. She told Vox, and this might be the only time that I ever quote from Vox, quote, I think whatever comes next is a novel legal tactic. I would be really pessimistic that the courts, stacked as they are, would be receptive. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. One last thing to say before we leave this issue, and that is if you care about the right of pregnant women and people who don't identify that way to have bodily autonomy, there are a lot of them closer to home who also need your support. Mara Clark of the Abortion Support Network, which is always happy to take your donations, said, quote, Northern Ireland has decriminalised abortion but not commissioned any services, which means people still have to travel to England. Poland has enforced a near total ban on abortion and women there are dying from preventable causes because doctors won't give them abortions. And people in the Republic of Ireland are still being left behind by the post-repeal laws. We funded more than 179 clients since the law changed and heard from well over 500 people. Time to talk about the ever-concerning subject of the so-called cost-of-living crisis, something which isn't going away anywhere, as our government discovered in last week's local elections. Neither are the fixed penalty notices, inquiries into lockdown rule-breaking, whether or not the Prime Minister misled Parliament, nor the relentless frustration and bewilderment about the total absence of compassion in those making the rules. Just saying but also bringing us back full circle to the cost of living crisis. It's one that our government has thus far done, as far as I can see, absolutely fuck all about. And of course, it hits those who are least able to buffer the impact of the spiralling rate of inflation, gas and energy costs, food and all the rest of it the hardest. A new survey by the Food Foundation has now found that more than 2 million adults in the UK have gone without food for a day in the last month because they cannot afford to eat. Jeez. 57% of those surveyed said that they had cut back on food or skipped meals between January and the end of March this year. And these figures include 2.6 million children having smaller meals or foregoing food altogether. And that is not because of food insecurity, although that is also a problem. It is because, and I repeat, they cannot afford food. This comes as Keith Anderson, the boss of Scottish Power, one of the UK's so-called Big Five energy companies, has said that it is necessary for the government to intervene in the cost of energy bills. And Keith's not telling them anything they haven't already heard, but much like it's not a great look to get a ticking off from the Archbishop of Canterbury over a perceived yeah. lack of morals. When the chief executive of an energy company is telling you that bills are too high, the optics of that, are, well, they're sort of shit, aren't they? Mm-hmm. It's not completely altruistic, mind you. Anderson suggests that the anticipated unpaid bills by customers who simply cannot afford to pay them will see energy companies collapse, as well as potentially thousands of customers disconnected from supply ahead of a brutal winter. 
It's so depressing. Yeah, so what they're saying is, you know, somebody's got to pay these bills, else we're not going to be making massive profits. I think, you know, he's saying that they might collapse. And the thing is, if an energy company collapses, they don't really collapse, do they? Someone else has to foot the bill for it. And it, that it's going to be the taxpayer if one of the big five collapses because of unpaid bills. It is going to be the taxpayer that foots that bill. So basically, we can pay in taxes or we can pay in taxes. Something clearly needs to be done from everyone's yeah. perspective. And nothing that I can see is being done. I am no expert in what needs to be done, to be honest, because obviously there are complications that, you know, I Russia, don't really for example, yes. oil, well, yes. oil dependency on, in Russia. Yeah, that's a complication. Yeah. Absolutely. Although we are less dependent on oil from Russia than most other European countries. Yeah. What it must be like to try and run a household with the knowledge that you can't heat it is, yeah, and the thing is, it's not just terrifying. it's it's not just horrible. It's it's fatal. It kills people yeah, every year. People die does. because of fuel poverty. If anyone would like to know more about this, can read the Independent John Hills is sadly no longer with us. Review into fuel poverty, which I did a bit of research as part of it. There's a lot of information about fuel poverty and the physical and mental impacts on people. And yeah, it's it's a really serious issue. And I, it's depressing that that review was like ten years ago. And here we are. Do you want a bit of good news, Jen? Yes, please. Yes, please. Well, I don't know if you remember this, but a while back I spoke about a new scheme at Cambridge University designed to help people from the sort of background that makes them rare as rocking horse shit at (laughs) Oxbridge. Well, progress is already being made. Currently, state school pupils make up 72% of intake at Cambridge. That was in September last year. That's up from 70 0.6% in 2020 and 68.7% in 2019. And that's before the first foundation year, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. The intake of that is due to start in September this year. The Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, Stephen Toop, has said that there will be a smaller intake of private school students at the university in the future and added that rather than denying private school students and saying, we don't want you, the university would be more welcoming. Now, the scheme has been criticised widely because Natch, (laughs) and it's worth saying that a lot of the people leaping forward with arguments like a lot of rich kids go to state schools haven't appeared to have read the paperwork, which clearly states that Cambridge isn't just trying to get more state school kids through its doors, but specifically kids from state schools that have never sent a pupil to Oxbridge before. And now Oxford University has joined the fray, saying pupils with three B grades at A-level will be able to study at Oxford if they suffered, quote, grave disadvantage. From next year, 50 students will take a foundation year to help them catch up before progressing to a traditional three-year degree. Which sounds an awful lot like they've just copied the Cambridge scheme, but (laughs) who cares? It's all progress, right? Mm. Well, you say that, but a lot of people, (coughs) twats, (laughs) are objecting to the schemes on the grounds, and I'm paraphrasing here, that they don't spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on their kids' education for their place in the world to be stolen by a pleb who's crawled out of some shithole comp in the West Midlands. Alison Pearson, Telegraph columnist Mm. and Cambridge University alumni, accused Tope of destroying the university's reputation as if Pearson's appearance on University Challenge didn't already do that. 
Rather than read what she has to say, may I suggest instead that you take in an excellent thread by Robin Vittner about the lack of working class people in journalism. I'll put a link in the show notes. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. Welcome to Sexism of the Week, that time of the week where we ask ourselves, is there such a thing as too much information when it comes to our own bodies? I don't want to peek too soon here, but it's a resounding no from me. One person who doesn't agree with me is Times columnist Indian Knight, who wrote a very supportive piece at the weekend headline, which, yes, I know she won't have written herself. Can we just call it with this menopause mania? In fairness to whoever did write it... It's an accurate summary of the piece. <laughs> yeah. Knight, it seems, did not have any trouble at all with the menopause. Didn't even know it was happening. And she says she has to assume that her experience is common. Well, India, you know what they say about making assumptions. Mm. Why has everything become so noisy and dramatic, she ponders, lamenting the possible, and I quote, narcissism of those who she says take their own bodily functions as, and I quote, a personal affront. In what is, ironically, one of the most entitled pieces I've read yeah. in a while. Get back in your box, Davina, you're scaring the youth. Women have been experiencing menopause forever, so why are we suddenly so bothered about it? Now, I wonder if, and this is just an idea, India, I don't know if you've considered it, we may be talking about it now, because we can? Jen, that's wild. That's wild and crazy talk. Is it? Is it possible that society is playing a millennia-long game of catch-up when it comes to thinking about women's bodies as being normal rather than gross and steeped in shame? What is really the only way to lessen that shame, I ask? And I, want, I was trying to remember who said this on this very podcast... And I can't attribute it to anyone, I'm afraid, because I simply cannot remember who said it. But they said that shame dies when we shine a light on it. Um, Yeah, I mean, it sounds smart, so it could be almost anyone. Exactly. I'm not currently menopausal, but I am 39. So, you know, it is not a million years away. I have, however, had periods for a solid 26 years and also been pregnant and given birth to a child. Both very normal bodily functions and women have been doing these things forever as well. But I think a large proportion of us could agree that they're fucking shit. And if we have the tools at our disposal to make them easier for ourselves, why not? Oh, shut it, narcissist. <laughs> what a woke bastard. Anyway, I know that I, for one, feel a lot more comfortable knowing what might be around the corner. It's a horrible piece. It is. I read it and I've got so much to say that we're not going to fit it all in here. But I feel like I ought to say something given that I am a menopausal woman. And I had no problems at all in my entire adult life with periods. And yes, I am aware that some women suffer from terrible things like endo. So I would never dream to say all periods are easy peasy. Why mm -hmm. are you making a fuss about it? On the other hand, as well you know, I have suffered quite considerably um, in the past couple of years. I get almost no sleep. I am hot all the time. Mm -hmm. And also I have dizzy spells, which are debilitating and can go on for days and days and days. I don't talk about it that much. I'm talking about it now. I don't moan about it that much because it's not necessarily in my nature. 
but it makes me happy that other women do. And the only reason that I know that these dizzy spells come as a result of the menopause is because other women have written about it because no doctor could work out why I was dizzy all the time. So actually talking about it has saved the NHS an absolute fortune in trying to find out why it was that at least two days a week I wake up and can't stand up out of bed and have to like crawl along the floor until I feel a bit better. The second thing to say on this is this concern that we are somehow terrifying younger women and ruining their lives with the idea that this is coming. I would argue that women will learn at some point the way that men see them and look at them. And I think that that's a lesson that's better learned when you're young, if I'm honest, than starting to learn when you start to become menopausal. I'm very fortunate that my sense of self-worth is not tied up in what people think I look like or who wants to fuck me or whether or not I am fertile. But a lot of women's self-worth is. And Mm. I think that the sooner that we stop shaking that particular tree the better i just think like i don't know like both of the things you said there i think are totally totally valid for one like how would you even i think one of the things that we sort of discovered when we did our series on menopause is that for a lot of people they simply did not know what was happening to them because there was so little information available to Mm. them and i think that's an immeasurably positive thing that people actually know that they're not going fucking mad or they're not, like, losing their faculties or whatever. Like, they're just going for a normal process. And actually... They haven't got a brain tumour. Exactly. It's not mania. It's actually... What it's actually doing is normalising what is a normal thing by talking about it. Yeah. And, yes, for people listening, it is pretty awful. But also, I have chosen to do this without the use of HRT, which was the decision I have made. So... Make your own decisions. No decision is right or wrong. But if you are dizzy as fuck all the time and dizzy as fuck enough that you vomit, which has been happening to me for about two years, you know, be aware. It's probably your hormones. And, you know, go to your doctors and ask them. And fingers yeah. crossed they might have heard of the menopause now that Davina McCall started talking about it on TV <laughs> because they didn't get any fucking training on it, did they? Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by the incredible feminist writer and activist, Laura Bates. Laura, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, it's always gorgeous to have you. In fact, we last spoke to you in October 2020, and I am sad to say sexism has not been sorted. Shocker. (laughs) (laughs) It's very much still out and about doing its sexist thing. The good news is you have a new book out and it is a corker. Fix the System, Not the Women. I mean, what a title, mate. That's amazing. Is a proper page turner exploring systemic everyday sexism against women with a focus on male violence. Just so the listeners know, it covers five key areas of institutional sexism, and that is education, policing, the wider criminal justice system, politics and the media. And a lot of what you're writing about won't come as any surprise to our listeners because they are the drums that we bang all of the time on Standard Issue. You do manage to do it with less swearing, though, so well done. (laughs) So tell us, why did you decide to write Fix the System? 
I felt so overwhelmed with rage and frustration that even in the wake of the 18 months that we've seen with the horrendous news for women that's been coming out, we are still seeing people suggesting that this is bad apples. In fact, literally this week, we've seen the business secretary say that it's just bad apples. When 56 MPs are under investigation for sexual misconduct, that's about a tenth of all MPs. Like how... How much more obvious does it need to be for people to recognise systemic issues? I just felt that there was this outpouring of grief and rage and anger, and that was a powerful thing, but it was still focused on women and their behaviour, and so was the advice we were being given. After Sarah Everard, police told women in Clapham not to go out on their own at night. After Sabina Nessa, they handed out attack alarms to women in the local area. After Bobby Ann McLeod, the city council leader, said people shouldn't put themselves in compromising positions. We had a police and crime commissioner saying Sarah Everard shouldn't have submitted to the arrest. And then we had all of these solution ideas that were about women. You know, we had police in the wake of the spiking incident saying women need to be going out with drink testing kits on nights out. We had the the police, the Met Police, saying women should be flagging down buses, for God's sake. And I just felt so frustrated that the attention was rightly there, but the focus was still in the wrong direction, still on the women and on their responses and their preventative measures. So I wanted to write about joining the dots, really abolishing this phrase isolated incidents forever to the dustbin of history and putting the evidence out there to really build an argument that actually we are talking about institutional misogyny across our society and trying to really nail that down and prove that so that we can demand institutional solutions. Do you know what? You're always really articulate and measured. And that is absolutely still the case in Fix the System. But I I got your rage on the page a lot more in this book. Yeah, I think I'm getting to a point of just being so angry and so frustrated. This was the first audio book of mine I've ever read that I had to stop because I burst into tears reading it. It just feels so devastating. You know, when I was writing this book, I had to keep updating the book because so many women were dying so quickly. Between the second draft and the third draft, Sabina Nessa died. Between the third draft and the copy edit, Bobby Ann McLeod died. Between the copy edit and the proofs going out, Ashling Murphy died. It's just devastating. And the fury, I think, of the frustration that women are continuing to die at such a rate and that real systemic action just isn't being taken. I mean, how could you not be furious? Oh, no, tell me about it. My screaming pillow is in regular use. (laughs) You mentioned the phrase that people keep pulling out, which is bad apple. You point this out in your book, and I've seen it pointed out before. I'm pretty sure we pointed out on Standard Issue. The rest of that phrase spoils the whole damn lot, right? Ruins the barrel. They are not willing to join those dots, though, at all, are they? They're not, because joining them, of course, would mean recognising the systemic nature of the problem. And acknowledging that would mean actually having the onus on them to take systemic action to fix it. And that's what there just doesn't seem to be any political willingness to do, to take responsibility, to acknowledge systemic issues and to tackle them in a systemic way. That bad apples phrase, it's completely mind-blowing. And even after the Charing Cross report came out, which showed, you know, horrendous sexism, misogyny, abuses of power, sexual misconduct, racism in that police station, the first response from the Met Police was a statement that said, we do not believe that the Met is institutionally misogynistic. And you just think, what is it going to take 
you know, these men who we're being told are bad apples, Wayne Cousins, who who murdered Sarah Everard, was literally nicknamed the rapist by his colleagues. He'd been previously reported three times for exposing himself for indecency. We've got cases like the officers who took photographs of the dead bodies of Bieber and Nicole, who shared them in a WhatsApp group with 41 other officers. You know, this idea that it's nobody knows this is going on to acknowledge that this is a systemic problem, that it is pervading an institution in which women are already outnumbered two to one, is not to say that we are accusing every individual involved in any way in that institution of being a misogynist or actively carrying out these crimes. And I think people get hung up on that, that to talk about institutional misogyny somehow means accusing every police officer. And it doesn't, but it means recognising that there is a significant problem and it means recognising that it's a cultural issue, that it isn't isolated incidents, that it is a cultural problem. And the same is absolutely true in politics. It's true in our education system is true in the media and we can't separate those things out because they are all so connected and it, it absolutely pays for the patriarchy to convince women that actually we're complicit in our oppression there are no dots to join exactly that's the big trick right that's been played on us that it is so neat and so insidiously clever not only to deny that institutional sexism exists, but essentially to gaslight women and girls from childhood into believing that their experience of it is either all in their own head or all their own fault. And that is what we do when we tell girls from such a young age, he just likes you. It's because you're wearing a short skirt. It's boys being boys. It's just the way things are. And later when women go into the workplace and we tell them, oh, that didn't happen because you're a woman. You're just being uptight. You're imagining it. Take it as a compliment. I'm sure he didn't mean it like that. We are literally indoctrinating women into believing that what is actually systemic oppression is really just the result of their own individual foibles and character traits. And I was really struck by that when I was researching some of the kind of systemic issues in the book. How many women I know who would have said things like, oh, I'm just not the kind of person who feels like she can advocate for a pay rise. Or, oh, I'm just not comfortable talking about what I want in bed. Or mm-hmm. I just don't really like exercising outside. When the reality is that all of these are statistical trends, that women are much less likely to ask for a pay rise, that they're much less likely to be satisfied or to feel able to talk about what they want in bed. And actually, it's not just because of a quirk of us individually. It's not just because she needs to go on an assertiveness course or she's not quite confident enough. It's a system that is oppressing us. And indeed, women who do actually go on those courses and do act more assertively get punished for it in the workplace, Mm -hmm. the data shows. So it's just a big, dirty trick, essentially. And recognising the systemic nature of the problem, I think, it's a key to unlocking and freeing ourselves from the self-blame that has been foisted on us by society for so long well that's really key and actually fix a system opens with your personal list of what i'm going to loosely term sexist shithousery which incorporates <laughs> everything from harassment to assault and it's it's a very candid list and it's fucking awful and i wanted to give you a hug and i have a list that's very similar so could you tell us a bit more about that list and why every woman and you know man as well should make one so that we can make the personal political, because it is. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's really powerfully kind of become clear to me since running the Everyday Sexism Project, that when I talk to women about their stories, there's usually one or two stories that spring to mind immediately. And then over time, as you have the conversation, more and more and more comes to mind. 
And it's not until you really sit down and think through and write down from childhood what are all the incidents I've experienced, big and small, because of being a woman. And it becomes incredibly shocking. And I've heard so many of these lists since I started the project, and often they're intermingled with racism, with homophobia, with ableism. The lists are all different, but what I write in the book is that if this list sounds shocking, Mm. it isn't. It's ordinary because every woman I know has a list like this and it isn't until you allow yourself to put all of those incidents together in one place including the ones that you've been told you're overreacting or you've imagined it or it didn't really happen like that or the ones that you've been told it was your own fault that you've been planted that seed of self-blame and doubt when you allow yourself to recognize all of those things for what they were it can be really, really shocking to see them all together. And I think that's when you start to recognise the impact this stuff has on our lives and what we think of as kind of decisions that we've made because of who we are or because of what we're interested in have often actually been shaped by a a history of abuse, that we are all trailing these lists of, of trauma, essentially. And the psychologist I spoke to for the book said this is a form of trauma that simply isn't acknowledged in our society. So we are talking about undiagnosed grief and and trauma that women are simply expected to just swallow down and get on with in their lives. And writing all of that out for the first time ever was very, very shocking and very upsetting, but also very cathartic, I think, because it allowed me to acknowledge it for the first time. And I think it really highlights the I think continuum is the right word the sort of spectrum continuum of different incidents and then you see how the focus from the media particularly male commentators and sort of shock jocks and from politics is always like what like wolf whistling's not dangerous and it it, by diminishing those things they get to then build up and diminish assault and domestic homicide and rape and all of that stuff and it is all on the same continuum right Absolutely. And of course, when you talk about that continuum, those men are the first ones to say, oh, you can't put all that stuff in the same bucket. You know, a wolf whistle isn't the same as rape. But they're also the ones who want to reduce everything to the most insignificant part of the spectrum. So you go in to talk about abuse and suddenly you're talking about wolf whistle. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course it's connected. You can see that so clearly. It's connected in the way in which it emboldens perpetrators. It's connected in the way in which it silences survivors. Because when we are so used to being treated in that way, to being reduced to second-class citizens, to being harassed, to feeling that our bodies are public property in in low-level, apparently insignificant ways, of course that has an impact on how we respond and how we feel when we experience more severe violations. And you see it in the project entries in in the language, actually. You can see the same slurs, the same words and phrases that are used in a derogatory way about women who are just being shouted at in the street. No big deal, love. Don't make a fuss. That same exact way of describing women comes up again in the story of a man abusing a partner behind closed doors or a woman being discriminated against illegally in the workplace. And you start to recognise that what we're doing when we enable and defend those low-level behaviours is is really setting up a power imbalance in our society, where we say that in the public spaces, women's bodies are fair game for any kind of public comment and that they have to put up and shut up and men can do whatever they want. And that that hierarchy, that power dynamic, then persists into other spheres and spaces. And of course, it affects our lives in other ways as well. Totally. From the moment that you're born a girl, you are given messages that you are dispensable, that you're not as important, that you are a second class citizen. Even just having the energy 
to fight for your place in the world, to feel like you can speak up is exhausting and we don't even recognise it. It's just stuff that we're doing subconsciously every time we go out in the world. And that does, you know, I've just said that and I thought, God, that sounds dramatic, Mickey, because I'm doing it to myself now and I'm someone who talks about this shit all of the time and I still question myself. But it's such a neat gaslighting trick So when you do get a woman who is assertive, who speaks up, who defends herself, protects herself, then it's now set up for them to be dismissed as a nag or abrasive. And the the fight is just exhausting. Yeah, it is. And you're right, because we take so much of this on internally and it's so assumed. And we know these rules, even though nobody ever sits this down and teaches them to us. And so it's not talked about. And so all of that just gets subsumed into kind of what's under the surface you know this really came home to me recently when I was doing a workshop with a group of girls who were 13 and 14 and and boys actually it was a mixed group and I was trying to start a conversation with them about gender stereotypes in quite a light-hearted way and I'd ask them all sorts of kind of quick-fire questions to try and help them look at how stereotypes affected their lives and I asked them how their lives would be different if they were different sex and so the boys said talked about things like what clothes they'd wear and what hobbies they'd have and what sports they'd play and those were really good jumping off points to talk about stereotypes and and gender roles which is what I was expecting but then this 13 year old girl put her hand up very quietly she said if I was a boy I wouldn't have to be scared all the time and she was 13 and and the other girls all started chiming in and they talked about walking home with their keys between their fingers and they talked about gripping their hockey stick on their way home from practice in the winter when they had to walk home in the dark and they talked about disrupting their day to wait two hours at school so that they could walk home with someone else and they talked about crossing the street if they saw groups of men up ahead and texting each other when they got home and not wearing a ponytail because they'd read online that that makes it easy for someone to grab you and all of these rules and these responsibilities and this weight that everyone woman I know is carrying and doing just automatically and they were 13 years old and I asked the other girls to put their hand up if they'd done similar things and every hand in the room went up and then I asked them to keep their hand up if they'd ever talked to anyone about it and every hand went down because it's just normal and and we don't talk about it they were 13 and they knew it was their job to protect themselves from getting raped or murdered but they'd never ever felt that they could ever talk about it to anyone because you cover those five very key institutions I mean the fact that they're institutions makes them key come on Mickey show some brains but you cover those and I was like well education clearly needs to shift first but actually well no that means that politics need to shift and actually that means the media and politics tend to me to go hand in hand and we can't we need to tip the whole fucking table yeah it has to be all of them at once because you can't get educational change without political will and generally you can't get political will without media pressure so you need the media coverage you know it, it's completely intertwined all of it is so interlocking it's incredibly frustrating talking of frustrations there's a really interesting section where you talk about the frustrations of being a campaigner an activist and being asked to go on tv and on the radio to i'm using bunny ears debate stuff like come on is it really bad a woman is killed every three days And I genuinely don't know how you have the patience, Laura, but thank you, because it is so key that you're there getting that attention directed towards the systemic inequality that is, you know, killing women. And I ask this as someone who has the same concerns with her own job, and that is, how do we get the middle ground, though? Because I feel like I'm either preaching to the converted or shouting at the sky. Yeah, 
It's really, really difficult. I think for me, this is a really key question about where male allies come in, because we've got loads of men now who have been galvanised by recent conversations and are kind of going, what can I do? What's my role in all this? What can I do? And I think the answer is that reaching those people in the middle, particularly reaching that critical mass of men, the majority of men who aren't behaving in this way themselves, but aren't necessarily actively part of the solution either because they don't necessarily know it's going on. Mm -hmm. How do we reach those men? And I think the answer to that is other men, other men starting these conversations with blokes that they know, taking these conversations into male spaces and making them uncomfortable if necessary, you know, into locker rooms and men's WhatsApp groups and, and work environments and sport pitches. And I think that's a difficult and an uncomfortable thing to do. But I always think, you know, if it's difficult for you to talk about it, imagine how it feels for us to live it. We have to reach those men. And that is a really key role that men can play, starting those conversations. The starting point for men to talk to their kids about this stuff shouldn't be when there's been a a horrendous sexting issue at school. It should be before that. It should be something that they're actively talking about. And I want to see our conversations where we tell our daughters not to wear short skirts completely replaced by conversations that men have with their sons about consent and healthy relationships. Yes, please. That's the dream, isn't it? And I do think, do you know what? I'm really, really cynical because this is, it's relentless and it's exhausting and it's centuries of socialisation. But I do feel kind of hopeful that there is a shift. Yeah, I think so. You know, we've changed the curriculum. Brilliant women's organisations standing alongside each other, campaigning for such a long time. And, you know, now consent is on the curriculum, finally. That is a tangible achievement that we've had through campaigning that hopefully will make a real difference for this generation but we have to be aware of the backlash that's out there as well you know we have to be aware of the fact that they're being that is being actively offset by online extremism and by what they're seeing in the world around them you know what good is a consent class when they get on the bus home from school and there's the newspaper open on the seat next to them and they can see Angela Rayner being essentially sexually harassed by one of our biggest newspapers You know, like what message does that send them about what's really normal and what really matters and what you can get away with in this world and how women can and should be treated? So that's why we've got to tackle all these things. That's why it doesn't work to do education without doing the media and it doesn't work to do media without doing politics and so on. Now, I guess the most frustrating aspect of your book, uh, not it's not your fault, obvs, but uh, the most frustrating (laughs) aspect is that so much of this change is already just there for the taking. It's already just there to be implemented. So please, could you tell the listeners a little bit about the Istanbul Convention, what it means and why the fuck our government is dragging its heels when it comes to ratifying (laughs) it? So the Istanbul Convention is absolutely brilliant. It's kind of a gold standard piece of legislation that would make a massive difference. It, It sort of takes in the holistic overview of these different interconnected areas, which is exactly what we've been talking about. It mandates things like ring fenced funding for frontline women's services, education around these issues, stuff in the media, particularly the way in which media covers these issues. And the government signed on to it over 10 years ago, but have never ratified it. And for a long time there were kind of excuses being given that there were little bits of legislation that would counteract it that had to be fixed first and all of that's been done now so at this point it's really just dragging their feet and you know you you have to wonder why that is could it be perhaps 
let's you know speculate because a government allegedly giving out a sexist of the year award at their Christmas party aren't particularly racing to implement things that would change things dramatically for women you know I mean it's it's so frustrating to see the lack of political will that when there is absolutely brilliant resource like the Istanbul Convention there for the taking, there to be implemented. And it's not only that, you know, one of the things I find so frustrating working closely with frontline women's organisations is that these are incredible organisations with hugely skilled professionals who are experts in their field who on a regular basis produce reports where they lay out suggestions for exactly the kind of systemic changes that would make a difference so you've got the organizations for example who make up the step up migrant women coalition with really clear suggestions for how the law could be changed to support migrant women who have no recourse to public funds and are completely and utterly abandoned by services when they experience domestic abuse. Those system changes that we need are there. They've recommended them. They've suggested them. Or you look at some of the reports from Rape Crisis and the Women's Justice Centre about how we could completely overhaul the criminal justice system to change the fact that just 1.4% of rapes reported to the police results in a um, charge or summons. You know, those systemic meaty solutions are there and yet because this is seen as a kind of puff issue when it comes up people think they can just kind of throw things at the wall you know these solutions that get suggested like oh let's put some police officers in clubs when a police officer has just raped and murdered a young woman or you know let's let's have a drone that tracks women on their way home and you think if this was anything else, you know, if this was something in healthcare, for example, you'd be going to the think tanks and to the experts and looking at what they rec- recommended. You wouldn't have kind of lay people just sort of randomly going, maybe we could try this or that. But it feels that women's issues just aren't taken seriously mm. in the same way. They're not sexy headlines, though, are they, Laura? No, it's really hard to get people talking about it because it's not sexy. And, and those reports aren't sexy and they sit there gathering dust and it's incredibly frustrating to see that. But, you know, I think there is this enormous public pressure and public will to see the issue tackled at the moment. So I think what's really crucial is sort of channeling that rage into demands for systemic overhaul. Totally. I think there's huge power in rage, which is why women have been told for millennia that we're not allowed to be angry. Fix the System, Not the Women is published by Simon & Schuster and it's out tomorrow, May the 12th. It is a must read. Just make sure you've got that screaming pillow handy. Laura, you're not one to rest on your laurels. What else are you up to? (laughs) I'm at the moment working on a a young adult fiction book that will be published next year, but there's not much I can say about it just yet. Well, please come back and talk to us about that. And, you know, I'm sure we'll end up raging about some institutional shit show at the same time, but... (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Thank you for having me. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined on the phone by author Julie Owen Moylan. Hello, Julie. Hi, Hannah. Julie is the author of the book, That Green-Eyed Girl, that I read on my holidays last week. It's a biggie, but I actually got through it incredibly quickly. I'm glad to hear that. My editor will be thrilled to hear that the pacing worked. (laughs) (laughs) So this book is out now, but now here on the 22nd of April that we're doing this interview, Mm. how do you feel about your debut book about to launch? Is it terror? Is it excitement? Is it a bit of both? Not terror. I am really excited about it. This has actually been a really emotional afternoon because 
my final finished copies just arrived a couple of hours ago. Wow. And I just unboxed them and I was a blubbing mess, absolutely blubbing mess. So I'm still slightly sniffly now. So that will be why, <laughs> because I've been like, it was just such a moment to hold it I know, bet. In, the, in the finished thing. And I'm really excited about going into a bookshop and seeing it for the first time. Yeah, it's a bit scary, but I waited so long because I'm so very old (laughs) and it's taken me such a long time more excited than terrified at the moment that might change though (laughs) over the coming weeks I suppose now you're at the stage where it's it's not just yours like for example I've read it so it's a little bit out there in the world so you've you've perhaps got a good idea of what people make of it Hmm. now I am going to ask you to give me a little pricey of what it's about because it's quite involved and I don't want to give too much of the plot away right That Green-Eyed Girl, it's a dual timeline book. And it's basically the story of two women, Dovey and Gillian, who live a secret life in a shabby little apartment in downtown New York City. They work as teachers and they live together as lovers at a time when it's illegal to be gay in New York City. And their secret is uncovered. And then 20 years later in the same apartment, a mysterious box arrives to a young girl, Ava, who is struggling with a mother who's got mental health problems. And Ava sets out to try and solve the mystery of what happens to Dovey and Gillian. And so it's really a book about complicated women living in very complicated times Mm. and all of the pressures and all of the strengths and pain, I think, that complicated women go through when they are trying to deal with that. Okay, let's start with, I've got a lot of whys for you now. Let's start with, why New York? Oh, I am weirdly obsessed with cities. And the kind of psychogeography of a city, whereby when you walk along a city, you're living, I think, simultaneously in lots of different timelines. Because I'm quite old and I've lived in this city nearly all of my life. I can remember what was there before that building, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So a young person is kind of like, oh, oh, that bakery is really old and tatty. And I'm like, oh, that bakery is quite new. It's only been there 30 years. You know, yeah. it was, <laughs> I remember the person who used to live in that house. And I'm weirdly obsessed with those tiny little stories and the buildings and who lived somewhere before. And I think New York is, is quite magical because there are so many people crushed together. And I love those kind of movies, you know, where you zoom in at one apartment block and then you go to one window in that apartment block. Yeah. And that's what I've tried to do with this story is like supposing we were zooming in the camera to New York City and we hit one kitchen window and there's a young girl there looking out. What's her life? And the whole thing kind of unraveled from there, really. So that's why New York and I love New York. Everyone loves a New York story. I'm taking my nephew to New York in a couple of months when he finishes his GCSEs. That's his finishing his GCSEs present, largely because I can't afford to take him during the school holidays. So that little bit that they finish early, yeah, um, it great. makes it affordable so we can we can actually go. And you're right, you can, you don't even have to spend any money in New York. You can just walk around the streets and you feel like you're in a museum. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's so thrilling to just see those buildings and... Just see, you know, yellow cabs and 
people carrying groceries in brown paper bags. I find that very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) It's like every movie you ever saw, you know. I was once in a bakery in New York and a police car pulled up outside and it put its lights on and the policeman ran inside and I thought, oh, what's going to happen here? Something exciting is going to happen here. This place is being raided. (laughs) And the woman handed him like a bag of, I'm guessing, donuts, and he took them and then got back in his car and drove off. Yeah. Okay, my second why question is, why the 1950s and why the 1970s? It started with the 1970s, actually. Some of that is kind of um, the story of the young girl narrative who's kind of bearing the weight of this kind of mentally ill mother really came from part of my own history I mean it's not autobiographical this but I just thought it was a really interesting like emotional landscape to work in Mm. because my mother had quite serious mental health episode when I was about 15 16 and she ended up being sectioned and that was back in the mid 70s so that's for me, I thought, well, supposing I gave that kind of emotional landscape, but gave it to somebody who was completely different and put it, say, in New York, mm. this city of stories. So I kind of started from there. And then from there, I was fascinated, as I've said, about who lived in this apartment before. And so I just started going back and thinking, well, what might have been interesting 20, 30 mm. years before? And the 1950s are really cool period for New York but also quite a contrasting period to the 70s where the city was broke and full of garbage and crime ridden and just falling apart whereas the 1950s there was a an element of glamour and uh, quite a nice time for a lot of Americans but not for Americans that were being persecuted obviously Mm. and McCarthyism and all of that kind of thing so those two periods to me seem to be really speaking to each other and I thought yeah I fancy working with that for a while I have to say it works really well and I would say I mean obviously we're talking about women's health and women's mental health though both of those times are are interesting from that point of view although arguably how much it has improved between now and then is 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 another conversation I always think if I'm going to sum up a book in one word how how would I sum it up or what what's it about and I would say that and feel free to correct me, but I would say that green-eyed girl is about loneliness. Am I on the mark or off the mark yeah, there? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's that's a reasonable summary of it. It's about loneliness. I think it's about people struggling to connect and try and find people they can rely on, people they can love, people they can be with. I also think it's about shame. I think it's about mm. what happens when women are shamed and that they can't be their authentic selves and they feel they have to disguise either because of their sexuality or their mental health struggles or their families falling apart. And I just think that women are put under so much pressure to conform. And if you're unable to conform because you just can't change either something which is obviously an integral part of you, such as your sexuality, or you're in a family situation that's outside of your control, Or you can't change the fact that you're in the middle of a very serious mental health episode. That's not your fault. But I think that the shame doesn't help. And it also changes the people around you and their behaviour. Shame, I think, is isolating. And I think that isolation leads to the loneliness. Yeah, because they're not necessarily lonely because they're on their own. Yeah. But yeah, there is a lack of connection. Yeah, agreed. 
Now, you mentioned earlier when you mentioned your age, and I don't usually bring people's age up in interviews because it's not usually relevant, but it is here because you are unusual in that your debut novel has come out when you are over 60. Yeah. I mean, that's almost unheard of. And I wonder if you could tell me why you think that is. Is it something to do with people giving up if they haven't succeeded by 60 or is it something to do with the intrinsic ageism that we have in society? Well, I think it's complicated and I think it really depends what class you come from. There are several big debuts out at the moment from women who are over 60 and that's great. And for some of them, they've got to the end of a quite successful career and their kids have grown up and left home and they've thought, you know, I'll give it a go and they've got a publishing deal and off they go. I think if you come from a working class background, which I do, and I left school at 16. And obviously, as I've said, my family had problems. There was nobody that was ever going to say to me in a careers lesson, oh, I know, darling, why don't you become an author? Because <laughs> you're quite good at this writing. You know, people left and got a job, you know. And so it took me a long time, I think, to give myself almost permission to do it because it was, I didn't really know how to go about it. I didn't know anybody in publishing. I didn't know what a literary agent did or how to find one. And of course, you know, a lot of that was kind of pre-internet where it wasn't that easy to find information. So Mm. for me, it took a long time. And then it took a while to give myself the mental space, really, to say, you know what, just because you haven't done it yet doesn't mean you can't. Yeah. When I got to 50, I thought, you know what, I am going to give this a go. I gave myself the gift of doing a master's degree in creative writing for my 50th birthday. And I really loved it. But I would say you don't need to do that to write a book. It's not, you know, something that is necessary. But for me, it was almost a way of saying, yeah, I'm taking this seriously now and giving myself that space to stand in that says, oh, this is not just a pipe dream. It's not stupid. Yes, not a hobby. Yeah, you can give it a go. And I think a lot of the time as women, we get to a point where, you know, we keep putting other things first, other people first. And I think you have to get to a point where you just go, give it a go, you know. And I don't think there's ageism in publishing, actually. It's all about the story. Nobody knows how old you are when you send in your manuscript. Yeah. No one ever asked me how old I was. They just went, oh, Yes, I love this. I think I can sell it. Whoops, I've sold it. There Mm. you go. Yeah. Although you do, perhaps not within publishing, but then you do get, for example, if you go to, say, for example, the BBC Writers Room, and a lot of those things will be like for under 21s or under 30s or young people. And you're like, there's not as many avenues for people to get their foot in the door, um, I think, for things like that at at, at an older age. We fetishise youth a bit. and, And so you get a lot of, oh, I want to discover an exciting new voice and this prize is for like under 30s or under 35s. And it's kind of, why can't an exciting new voice be some 60-year-old working-class woman who's actually got a lifetime of experience to share? Okay, so you say something in your acknowledgements, which is absolutely bloody lovely. I love it. I'm going to read it out. It says, when I was a kid growing up in a council house, I occasionally committed the awful crime of appearing to want more than we had. My family would often say to me, who do you think you are? Anyway, turns out this is who I thought I was. Yeah. I wonder if I could ask you, what advice would you give to somebody else who was sitting at home thinking, 
God, I think I've got a book in me, but I don't know where to go or where to start. I would say a good place to start is a local writers group. They're often free or they have, you know, or it's a very nominal amount. And you can just be with other writers and you can kind of compare your work, if you like, because people usually write a little bit, read a little bit out loud, get some feedback. I think it's great if you can do that, if you can form some kind of writing friendship, as it were, to somebody that can support you. Outside of that, I think read as much as you can and read not just stuff that you enjoy, but try to read even stuff that makes you a bit uncomfortable or is a bit outside of your comfort zone and really try to look at it and go why does this story work there are lots of different books you can buy there are lots of writing courses and some of them are very expensive and you don't really have to do that but there are good online resources and I think actually Twitter is quite a good resource Mm. for writing community and lots of very helpful people and lots of very good online resources so I would say get yourself on there look on the hashtags of writing community or book Twitter and start asking questions, ask for help. Writers are really helpful because we've all sat on our own in our pajamas <laughs> trying to work and wondering if we were ever, ever going to succeed. Yeah. And of course, once you get something, you can just submit it to literary agents and you may get signed. You know, so you can just give it a go. There are also loads of writing competitions, some of which will actually give you some feedback now, which is invaluable. There's a range of things that, you know, I didn't have access to when I was younger, but I think are really massively helpful and have helped me a lot along the way, actually, to find out things. Yeah, I think actually in that sense, age is probably quite helpful in as much as you're a lot more willing to take advice Well, this is just me personally, but I thought I knew more than I did when I was in my 20s, whereas I'm prepared to accept what I don't know now I'm in my 40s. And that that if someone said, that's just not going to work, I would take it on board. Whereas I think in my 20s, I'd have thought, well, I'm going to make it work. Yeah. I mean, of course, not everybody's advice is right. And you also, and I think this is the one thing I've really learned is trust yourself, trust your gut. Mm. You know, does it feel right to you? Because there are books that are being published that on paper never should work. And if you'd have pitched it to an agent, they would have said, nobody's going to buy a series about vampires or whatever, you know. But when it works, it works. And then it becomes the next big thing. So I think there's an element here of, yes, go out and seek advice, work at your craft, read what other people are doing, talk to as many people as you can get involved with local writing groups and stuff like that, go along to book events. You know, people like book local bookshops always have authors coming. It's, they're often free or, again, very small amount of money. You can go and listen to people to talk about their books and their writing and see if you can get advice like that. But the other part of that is when it's just you sitting down at your table writing something, trust you know, what is bothering you? I think the best writing comes from some kind of a wound, I mm. think, that the author's got, and it bothers them. And not to the point maybe where they need to get therapy, but to the point where they have an emotional 
torrent behind their words that kind of needs to come out. And I think that, you know, what bothers you? What what do you need to say to people? Yeah. Do you know, it's interesting because over the years, all the authors that I've I've talked to, most of them have what I would describe as a relatively unhealthy writing regime. As in, I always assume that everyone gets up at nine o'clock and they set up their desk and they start writing. And so many people say, no, 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 no. I don't actually start till six or seven o'clock in the evening. I spend a lot of the day just faffing around and then I and then I crack on really solidly. Or people who tell me they don't write at a desk, they write on their lap or they write writing down, lying down in the park. And I just think, wow, you know, the idea that writing is a certain sort of formalised thing is quite interesting. Possibly because, I don't know, of my kind of background, I treat it very much like a kind of job. Right, yeah. I turn up, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I need to write today. So I'll often, I'll I'll get up and... You know, I'll go to my desk and I go, I need to do like a thousand words or something or I need to edit this page or whatever. And I'll literally go to my desk and do it. And then when I'm free, I'm free. You know, when I've done, I'm done. Yeah. I'm like, I'm out of work now. <laughs> I mean, you never stop thinking about it. You can be working while you're watching Real Housewives, to be honest, which is good for me because I like to work while I'm watching Real Housewives. <laughs> now, I know you're at the Hay Festival coming up and you've got some other events where can people find out more if they want to come and see you talking? All my events are on my website, which is julioinmoyland.com. And yeah, I'm going to be going around the place. I'm in Crickhowell and Glasgow in the I right. I'm in Waterstones, Cambridge. I'm Who are you? I'll come and see you. May 25th with a lovely historical panel of really good authors, actually. We've all got debuts out. So yeah, come Oh, along. excellent. I'll come down to that. And what is next? Are you writing something else or are you a bit consumed with the prep for this? No, I have written a second book. Ooh. I am in the middle of editing it, which is phenomenal timing to be doing a really complicated edit in the three weeks before your first book comes out. But it is kind of taking my mind off the, the possible terror. I think people will like this book, but if you don't, I've got another one. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably will like this book, Julie. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Julie. Where can people get in touch with you? Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter, at Julio in Moylan. I'm there constantly (laughs) tweeting (laughs) out my thoughts for the day. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we send the patriarchy to the dressing room for an early bath as we discuss all things women's sport. We've got a few things to discuss, mostly good news, so I'm going to start with the iffy stuff before I go on to all the excellent stuff that's been going on. This is news from a few weeks ago now, which you will no doubt have heard talked about in the news, but we've had a few interviews for Journey Off the Blocks over the last few weeks, so we've not had a chance to discuss it here yet. And that is the ban of Russian and Belarusian players at this year's Wimbledon, which gets underway at the end of next month. I sort of thought they would have backtracked by now, but it doesn't seem to have happened, so it is worth chatting about. 
Wimbledon has gone further than any other tournament. Roland Garros, which starts in a couple of weeks, has said that players can compete under strict neutrality. So no flags, no anthems, that kind of thing. And I think that's reasonable. I think it's also reasonable to ban Russian national teams from competition, as has been the case, for example, in the upcoming women's Euros. However, tennis players are a bit different because they compete in Grand Slams and most tournaments as individuals. And I think it is wrong to hold them individually responsible for political events, especially when some of them have very bravely come out and publicly criticised Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. On that subject, some Ukrainian players have suggested that individuals should be allowed to compete if they do publicly condemn Putin. And I would like to say that while I have obviously enormous sympathy for those affected by the conflict in Ukraine, I think not only does that undermine the danger those players would potentially face as a consequence. It's also a very dangerous precedent to set. We can't be saying that athletes can only compete in sporting events if they subscribe to a particular set of political beliefs because very quickly we could see there are no Colin Kaepernick's, no Megan Rapinoe's, no Marcus Rashford's and I don't want to live in a world where there are no Marcus Rashford's. Do you? Anyway, I'm not alone in this. The move has been widely criticised by governing bodies, by players such as Rafa Nadal and Andy Murray, and I do hope that they will rethink this over the next month and a half. OK, let's leap seamlessly into some good news. First of all, last weekend's Betfred Women's Challenge Cup set a new record attendance for a women's rugby league match as 5,888 people turned up to watch St Helens beat the Leeds Rhinos 18-8. Well done, St Helens. In the same vein, let's turn to some new research by our friends at the Women's Sport Trust, which has found an exponential growth in demand for women's sport. According to research, 17.9 million people watched women's sport through to April 2022, which compares with 6.7 million in the same period last year. I mean... I guess there were still some COVID restrictions around the beginning of 2021, but most sport was up and running again by then. So that is obviously massive. Why is that happening? I don't know. I'm going to hazard a guess here and say it's because they can, because broadcasters have pulled their fingers out and actually started to broadcast women's sport. And people have responded by actually watching it. Who knew? Me. I knew. Let's not get too complacent, though, because we do also have to acknowledge reports earlier this week that a number of journalists walked out of a Scottish Football Writers Association gala dinner in Glasgow over racist, sexist and homophobic comments described by journalist Gabriella Bennett as next level. The offending comments were apparently made as part of a 20 minute speech, which Bennett said prompted her to leave after five minutes. I don't know what those comments were, I've not looked them up, but the BBC's Ailey Barber said she had never felt so unwelcome in the industry. The SFWA has apologised to anyone offended or upset by the speech, which is a bullshit apology, to be honest, because it does rather frame it as the fault of whoever was offended rather than their own organisation for booking someone who made racist, sexist and homophobic comments. Anyway... I promised you good news, and good news you shall have. It's Emma Hayes related, because of course it is. Chelsea women have won an historic third consecutive WSL title after beating Manchester United 4-2 at the weekend. They pipped Arsenal to the post by one solitary point to claim their sixth overall WSL title. And why do we love Emma Hayes so very much, even though we technically hate Chelsea? And by we, I mean I, but... 
you know, you know. Well, apart from being really bloody good at her job, which is an absolute joy to bear witness to, she's funny, she's smart and she's got an excellent head on her shoulders. Asked about the pressure of her final game of the season on Saturday, she responded thus. I'm from a council estate, trust me. Pressure was putting money on the table to pay the bills as a child. This is not pressure. Look at inflation. Look at the rising costs for people to pay their bills. This is far from pressure. And what a delight to see some perspective in football and indeed the world. That is all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more from my Emma Hayes for Prime Minister party political broadcast. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film which gave me a fresh perspective on how good my parents' parenting was, did we watch this week? (laughs) Oh my God, so much that. Although at some points, similar parenting for me, if I'm honest. But this week we watched Steven Spielberg's mega blockbusting 1982 sci-fi adventure for kids and aliens alike, E.T. So what's E.T. short for? Because he's only got little legs. Oh, <laughs> it's a classic for a reason. E.T. is, of course, actually short for extraterrestrial, which I'd forgotten they massively spell out. And by that, I mean literally right down on the title card. And that's because the film's full name is E.T. the Extraterrestrial. The film premiered at the 1982 Cannes Film Festival's closing gala on May the 26th and got its full release in the United States on June the 11th, finally making it to Blighty a full six months later on December the 9th. Written by Melissa Matheson and based on an imaginary friend Spielberg created after his own parents divorced, the script was picked up by Universal for a cool million dollars, having been rejected by Columbia Pictures, which presumably went on to kick itself in the nabs forever. Because, from its big but not massive budget of $10.5 million, E.T. brought in a box office takings of... Do you want to guess? I mean, I'd say a shitload. Yeah, I was hoping for, like, actual digits, but go on. <laughs> 500 million. $792 million. Wowzers. Mm-hmm. I thought 500 was an outlandish guess. Not outlandish enough, Jen. Indeed, the film quickly surpassed Star Wars to become the highest grossing film of all time, a record it held for 11 years until Jurassic Park surpassed it in 1993. You all know how I feel about Jurassic Park. But E.T. wasn't just a commercial hit, bagging nine Oscar nominations and taking home four awards. Best picture that year went to Dickie Attenborough's Gandhi, although the director himself was surprised, saying, I was certain that not only would E.T. win, but that it should win. It was inventive, powerful and wonderful. It also won universal acclaim from critics, with Derek Malcolm of The Guardian writing, E.T. is a superlative piece of popular cinema, a dream of childhood brilliantly orchestrated to involve not only children, but anyone able to remember being one. It is certified 99% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, scored the first A-plus grade from audiences polled on its opening weekend, made Princess Diana cry and earned Spielberg a UN Peace Medal. It also made immediate stars of its child actors, particularly Drew Barrymore, who plays seven-year-old Gertie, and Henry Thomas, who plays ten-year-old Elliot and E.T.'s best pal. There are other people in it, including Dee Wallace and Peter Coyote. Yep, that golden voice behind Ken Burns' documentaries, but they're almost too insignificant to be bothered with. E.T. itself is a gentle alien from a species of empaths with a sweet face, a sweet tooth, an extendable neck, disturbingly meaty texture, cute purring noises and a genuinely blood-curdling shriek. 
I don't know if it's meat so much as joke shop turd is the texture I find him. He's a little bit too shiny. Yeah, I think he goes through a series of sausages, like sort of fresh sausage <laughs> to saucisson when he's not very well and a bit dusty. He looks like those sausages yeah. you get in Spain. That's when he looks the least offensive, I think, when he's well dusty. I think he's definitely got more than a hint of like the pepper army about him, hasn't he? <laughs> he's a bit of an animal. Elliot thinks E.T. is a boy. Gertie thinks E.T. is a girl. And we're never told either way. Chain-smoking, raspy-voiced actress Pat Welsh lends her voice to our alien friend, whose appearance, designed by Carlo Rambaldi, was inspired by a painting called Women of Delta, but also the faces of Carl Sandburg, Albert Einstein and Ernest Hemingway. So who knows? Little people Tamara Dutro and Pat Billen, as well as 12-year-old Matthew Demerit, who was born without legs, took turns wearing the costume, depending on what scene was being filmed. And Caprice Roth, a professional mime, played E.T.'s hands. Spielberg declared the E.T. puppet something that only a mother could love, which I think we've covered a little bit, but you certainly agree with Hannah. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of repulsive. When he looks like a, a petrified turd, he's actually at his most attractive, I think. <laughs> Jen, how did the E.T. puppet make you feel? He's like a pug, isn't he? He's sort of like so disgusting, he's cute, is kind of how I feel about him. But I was a little bit worried about how you might view him from a child's perspective and if she might be frightened. I think he's adorable and he reminds me of my grandma. Yeah. I will say, I find his noises to be quite endearing. The scream is terrifying. Yeah, and the snuffling and the all of that, yeah. Yeah, he's cute. But that, that shriek, I'd totally forgotten about the shriek yeah. when he just screams right mm. at the beginning for about an hour. Okay, a fun fact. Apart from using Pat Welsh's excellent rasp, sound effects creator Ben Burt recorded 16 other people and various animals to create E.T.'s voice. These included Spielberg, actress Deborah Winger, his sleeping wife, sick with a cold, a burp from his USC film professor, raccoons, otters and horses. Mm-hmm. And what of E.T.'s legacy? Well, I mean, it's everywhere, isn't it? Most recently in Netflix smash Stranger Things, the original series of which featured kids on bikes hiding a magical being from ruthless scientists and learning all about love along the way. It also featured a struggling single mum who did nothing much but scream and cry, but we will get to that. So before I do a brief plot pressy, some interesting information for anyone who thinks nostalgia is going to hold a lot of sway on this week's Rated or Dated. Because apart from bits and pieces that were always on the telly, I have only ever seen E.T. once in full before. Hannah, what about you? Yeah, I've seen it once in full before at the cinema contemporaneously. And I remember it because Newport Pagnell Cinema, as a lot of cinemas were laid out in those days, You walked in and there was like stalls at the back that you walked through the centre and then you walked that way and then down the side to get to the front seats. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. We had to sit in those back seats when we went to see it, which is the only time I can ever remember having to sit as far back as Ah, that in the cinema. And my sister cried a lot. (laughs) And apart from bits and pieces and other stuff, no, I've never watched it all the way through again. And Jen... Nil point. I have never seen this film the whole way through before, ever. I've seen bits of it, like the shriek and obviously absolutely iconic Luke's serve when he gets dressed up in the (laughs) the wig and stuff, which is wonderful. But uh, yeah, I've never seen it the whole way through before. Okay, I think we are unusual, certainly from our generation, of of that kind of relationship with E.T. Let's talk the plot. 
A species of empath alien botanists visit Earth to grab some plants. One little alien gets distracted by the bright city lights and then chased by government agents, meaning it misses its spaceship home. Instead, E.T. takes shelter in the tool shed of a family comprising Mum Mary, that's Dee Wallace, eldest son Michael, played by Robert McNaughton, 10-year-old Elliot, 7-year-old Gertie, and a distinct lack of dad who's living it up in Mexico with his new girlfriend Sally, causing all sorts of emotional fallout for those he's left behind. Doesn't even like Mexico! (laughs) I think what you meant is, he doesn't even like Mexico! (laughs) After a bit of to-ing, throwing, screaming and shrieking, Elliot lures E.T into his house with a trail of Reese's pieces and the two lonely souls quickly become friends. More than that, they become intrinsically linked. Elliot brings his siblings in on his secret and eventually they all fall for the cute sweaty sausage from another planet and attempt to help him get home using a speaking spell, a bit of a buzzsaw and an umbrella. We've all done it. But they're not the only ones with E.T. in their sights and indeed are being watched by dastardly government agents. Now, being away from its people makes E.T. very sick, and being linked to Elliot means that Elliot gets very sick too. Mary, the mum, becomes horrified upon discovering her poorly son and the dying alien, just as a group of government agents dressed in biohazard suits led by Keys, that's Peter Coyote, invade the house. To save Elliot, E.T. unlinks from him and dies. Shitting hell! But... Wait! Hooray! E.T. is risen! He is not actually dead. And after a big mad escape chase on flying bikes, our little alien is delivered safe back to a return spaceship. Cue Rainbow. Hannah. Jen. Were there tears? No. Of course there weren't. <laughs> Hannah's answer didn't surprise me at all. Jen's answer surprises me enormously. No, I didn't cry. I think I was... Um, I think the last five minutes of it, I was a bit like... Okay, this is a bit of mosh. But apart from that, no, none. None. Not even when he dies. Well, that's in the last five minutes, isn't it? Maybe the last ten minutes. When you actually think he is dead, I was mostly just like, fucking hell, this is brutal. Like, what kid wants to watch this? I know, it's nearly two hours long. That is the first thing I said to my (laughs) mum. I was like, who makes a you that's two hours long? Who does it? (laughs) Steven fucking Spielberg, that's who. Mick, did you cry? Yeah, I mean, I cry at everything, particularly at the moment, to be honest. But yeah, when he turned into a little sort of powdery saucy son, absolutely. Yeah, very sad. I was concerned for him, but I didn't (laughs) cry. (laughs) Oh, God, at least someone was concerned for someone in that Uh, film because they're just allowed to run riot. I think part of the problem is that don't really like Elliot. I mean, I have sympathy for Mm. Elliot because I also had to have that haircut. For all of the 1980s. <laughs> no wonder they were lonely. But <laughs> I I didn't really like him. And therefore, I wasn't really that invested in his investment in E.T. as such. Whereas Drew Barrymore is fucking magic in this. Like, genuinely cute. brilliant. Do you know the thing about her that is incredible in it? Is that her mannerisms and her... They are exactly the same. They have remained the same over 40 years. You're like, oh, yeah, like, she still does that now. Like, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't like, pinpoint any specific thing, but you're just like, the expressions and stuff? Like, you're just like, that's fully... Yeah. Still her. Well, she believed that E.T. was real. Spielberg told her it was real. 
So when E.T. dies, in inverted commas, those sobs are genuine, which feels like they wouldn't get away with for duty of care now. And, you know, Drew Barrymore did get quite ill after this. I was going to say, no wonder she developed such a such terrible addiction problems, given that's, that's quite a traumatic situation to be put in at quite a young age, isn't it? Like, fucking yeah, hell, Spielberg. Yeah. I agree with you, Hannah. I didn't like Elliot at all. I didn't warm to him. And I, while I really, really love E.T., the rest of the film I found so boring. I just found it really dull. Those two hours really dragged. Just give me the highlights reel of E.T. in a wig, E.T. trying to phone home, E.T. among some toys. I don't want the rest of it. I didn't care about anyone in this film apart from E.T. I didn't give a shit about what happened to any of them apart from mm. E.T. Who I cared about a little bit. I was, As I said, I was concerned for him at times, but like... <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't really care that much. And also, I think because it was made at a time where the UK and America were like fully separate entities, in as much as I didn't know what Reese's Paces were, it doesn't actually have that degree of nostalgia of stuff. The only kind of nostalgia I had was for Speak and Spell. And we never owned a Speak and Spell, but there was a shop in Milk Keynes, a toy shop, and it had a Speak and Spell like chained to a post that you could go and play on. And there was always a queue to play on it. So my mum used to leave us in there, go and do our shopping and come back and we'd be in the queue. I mean, who knew the children of Milton Keynes were so excited about, about <laughs> being told that they'd spelled words correctly. And that was the only thing in it that caused any degree of nostalgia from that. Had it been set in the UK, you know, or had... You know, I know you get Reese's Pieces now. You know, had those things been around when I was younger, maybe I would have more of a sense of nostalgia for it than I do. But I didn't. I did have a speak and spell. And ironically, it was a, a guilt present from my absent father. Um, right. So I think E.T. would have approved. No one knew Reese's Pieces. It was a new candy. And Spielberg had gone to M&M's to be E.T.'s favourite sweet. But they said no. So Reese's Pieces or Reese's stepped in and went, we're launching something new that looks a bit like an M&M. They were like, okay. That makes me want to quote the pretty woman line and be like, big mistake, M&M's huge. Yeah, Yeah. them and Columbia Pictures, idiots. So we've touched on it a little bit. What do you think the film E.T. says about single mothers slash parenting in the 1980s? Uh, Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that scene where he knocks the bins over, it made me think that they certainly need to recycle more. Because <laughs> everything that came out of that was cans or glass or whatever. I mean, I think parenting was more lax. You mm. know, I think your mother did say, I'm popping to the shop. Like, will you be all right by yourself? It is odd that she left Elliot at home sick by himself all yes. day. Yeah. I mean, that is, I think, quite <laughs> unusual. You know, Exactly. Yeah. And also when she just lets him sleep outside all night, but like not in a tent, not under really, he's just got a little blanket. Yeah. Also, doesn't she think there's a coyote out there? Yeah. That is also true. Or or (laughs) even if it's, even if it's a raccoon, you know, you don't want your kid to have an encounter with it. No. Trash pandas can be vicious. They can. Yeah. But also he's like dicking around in a cornfield at like whatever it's fucking dark anyway like what is yeah and also she's either got hearing problems that they just didn't have time to go into or parents in the 80s apparently didn't hear when things collapsed in your bedroom yeah (laughs) or just weren't bothered enough to come and check that you weren't dead under a bookcase can i tell you something about one of the kids in it yes please 
So I had a little look to see what happened to most of the people in this. And I was looking to see what happened to the kids. Now, Sean Fry, who plays one of the kids in this, one of the friends, the extra friends, just has the most delightful IMDb entry that I've ever seen. Fry retired from the film industry in 1988, entering into social work following the death of two very close friends. In 1993, Fry met his spouse, retired army veteran Michael Alexander, when Alexander issued Fry a parking ticket in West Hollywood. The couple adopted their infant son and centre of their universe, Logan Fry Alexander, in 2003 and proceeded to live happily ever after. Aww. Isn't that lovely? That is lovely. Let's just contrast it slightly with what happened to Henry Thomas. He plays Elliot. He is still acting and recently recorded Killer Poop in the movies. Well, that one. Who wouldn't want to see that? Yeah, that's a, that's a classic. Is that the old ET e. puppet? <laughs> Can I ask what your overall thoughts of E.T. are watching it as grown-ass adults? Well, I suppose... As a grown adult, you look at it and you can see immediately how influential it is because you can see how much has been cribbed by other stuff. Some Mm. of it, Spielberg himself, you know. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. There are bits of the Goonies in this, obviously stranger things that you mentioned. So I suppose it's impressive that it got made with no major stars attached to it. It's impressive that it's been so influential. I think its effects look rotten absolutely awful apart from et and i know he's not an effect he's a puppet uh, apart well, from I think that counts. but yeah. yeah you know the flying bikes and all of that they they look <laughs> they look like mary poppins over mm. london bad so i suppose my other thing that i think as an adult is at what point is somebody gonna say you know what we should make et again i think they made stranger things yeah good point jen um I think it's a, it's a tricky one to answer because, as you say, like if I'd seen this as a kid and loved it, I'd probably feel very differently watching it now. I'd probably think it was. I'd probably overall feel the same about it. But yeah, you do if you you know you do have that kind of nostalgic whatever. If we'd watched The Goonies, which is probably comparable in a lot of ways, as you said, Hannah. I you know I do remember loving that film and. We did watch the we Goonies, did watch though, it, Jen, and it was and shit. And it's dated. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a shame. Oh, yeah. My brother didn't talk to me for a full fortnight after we said that. but We got quite a lot of shit on Twitter for not <laughs> liking that one. I think I would probably still have liked it. I probably, you know, regardless of the flaws, I think I probably still would have liked it. But that's the point, isn't it? That's the nostalgia thing. I think I would have felt differently if I'd seen it as a child, basically. By the way, I love the bit when um, they all getting dressed up to go out trick-or-treating and the mum, like, rocks up in this sort of leopard print onesie thing and is like, woo, like, mum's mama's still got it kind of thing. Uh, that made me that made me laugh. Anyway, uh, I don't think it was supposed to, but it did. Mum is a sexy cat having a nervous breakdown, I exactly. think, is the vibe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought of something else that's really like it, which is Wally. Which I haven't seen either, yeah. Oh, Wally's lovely. Yes, yeah, really good. Well, he is lovely, and even looks a little bit ET shaped. Yeah, that that's that the wide eyed bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For me, ET the character is still adorable. It's still really cute. Mm. still really endearing. But the rest of the film bored me titless. <laughs> I watched it with Gary, who it was one of his favourite films when he was a kid, and he's seen it a bajillion times. And he came away just grinning, and like he and I was like, "Have we watched the same film? I don't understand." So I think the power of nostalgia can be so so strong, but yeah, not for me. Rated or dated? 
Do you know what? I'm going to say I the effects are not great and I didn't really enjoy it. So in that respect, meh, whatevs. But I don't really think it's dated particularly. Jen's gone for rated, Hannah. Yeah, I'm going to go for dated. Yeah, yeah, the effects don't especially stand up, I think. They look a bit naff. Well, really quite naff in parts. It's too long. And I find the terrible parenting distracting on a level that it's really difficult to watch it without laughing about how ridiculous it is that nobody gives a shit about where their kids are most of the time. I am going to say that E.T., the character and the creature, rated E.T. the film, dated. You centrist fuck. (laughs) Who's next? What are we ripping into next week? (laughs) Yeah, not going back that far. And surely not that controversial either. No Country for Old Men is 15. So let's watch that. Standard issue for all women.